Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read the first 10 verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there you have it. Last time we looked at Paul's prayer, his prayer of thanksgiving and praise in verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1, in which after explaining the Trinitarian nature of our salvation in verses 3 through 14, he breaks into praise and in prayer for the Ephesians. He thanks the Lord for their faith. He does not cease to remember them in his prayers. In other words, whenever Paul prayed, he brought to mind the Ephesian believers And he was thankful to the Lord for their faith, for their love, for their their continuing steadfastness in the faith. And then he prays, in a sense, an intercessory prayer in which he prays that the Lord will open, as as I said last time, and I'm just stealing the, the lyrics of the song, which steals it from the Bible anyway, open the eyes of their heart. Okay, There's an old worship song, open the eyes of my heart, and they take it right out of... Ephesians 1.18, where Paul there says, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened or opened or able to see where light shines in and, and makes things known. And Paul there prays that they may know, and this is not just knowing facts, this is a deep abiding knowledge of the hope to which he has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable power of the immeasurable greatness of his power that is working in us. Those are the three things he wants us to know. That we have a hope, that we have an inheritance, and that we have resurrection power working in us. That's what Paul prays that we know. And, and I may have mentioned this last time. The idea then is this is supposed to expand our worship. Right? It's one thing to worship God, but it's one thing to worship God informed about what he has done for us, all the wonderful things he has done for us. It, it expands our worship. It expands our gratitude. So we need to know in order that we can then worship properly, and then in order we can then live lives of gratitude. And then he, you know, then he finishes after he talks about the power that is working in us. He says, that's the same power that was working in Christ. When, when Christ was raised from the dead, and when the Father seated him at his right hand, and when he gave him authority, 
So when he starts talking about the immeasurable power work in us, he moves then to Christ and then starts talking about Jesus because Paul can't stop talking about Jesus. Okay, Whenever, whenever Paul starts talking about something, he always brings the, the topic around back to Jesus. This is the power that God used, that the Father used when he raised Christ from the dead. It is the power that seated Christ in the heavenly places at his right hand. And then he talks about how all power and authority has been given to him, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Christ is reigning now, and Christ will reign throughout the age to come. And he puts all things, right? All things are put under Christ, and he is the head over all things. He is the fullness who fills all in all. That's Paul's prayer. Now he leads into chapter 2, where... In a sense, I like to connect this with verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, where Paul there talks about our salvation in eternity past as a work of God the Father choosing, right? The Father chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. The Son redeems us by His blood. The Spirit seals us until we receive the inheritance. Well, I think we see in chapter 2 is then, how does God work that out? How does God work out that plan of redemption that you see in chapter 1 in space and time? How does he work that out? Well, he works it out by bringing dead sinners to life in Christ. That's what we see in chapter 2 here. He brings dead sinners to life in Christ by grace through faith. So, now, I I remember this is one of the first sermons I preached when I was in seminary, and it was... Not good, okay? <laughs> First sermons are usually not good, okay? And, uh, but I did make a mention, because, you know, Paul starts talking off about how we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And I, I, I made a reference to, you know, some zombie movies from the past, right? You know, if you've ever seen, like, Night of the Living Dead or The Walking Dead, which is a popular TV show that is now, thankfully, off the air because they just went well beyond their shelf life. But... That's, in a sense, what Paul is talking about. We are dead men walking, okay? Yes, we're alive. We have physical life, but we are dead to the things of God. We are, we are, we are not responsive to the things of God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are zombies, spiritual zombies. And what Paul is going to show is that dead men come to life in Christ by grace through faith. And that's what we're going to see here in this passage. The grace of God is revealed as dead sinners are made alive in Christ. Well, first, Paul looks at our former state. Because he's talking to believers here. Remember, he's talking to the church. So that's why he says, and you were dead. Right? This was your state. This This was your predicament. It's the predicament that we're all in at one point in our lives. We were born into this predicament. So he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
So again, coming off the heels of that impassioned prayer in verses 15 through 23, Paul now shifts uh, a bit when he comes to chapter 2. He prayed that we would know the immeasurable greatness of the power of God toward us who believe, and now we're going to see that immeasurable power and greatness of the power of God that's working in us. The power that was at work in Christ now will be at work in us. As Christ was raised from the dead, we're going to see dead sinners brought to life. In verses uh, 3 through 14 of chapter 1, we saw the Trinitarian work of salvation before the foundation of the world. Now we're going to see that working in the here and now. This is the plan of redemption being carried out before us. This is how believers come to faith. They are dead, they are made alive. That is how believers come to faith. Whether that happens at an early age or at a ripe old age on your deathbed before you pass into the great beyond. Right? That happened to the thief on the cross when he recognizes the, the, the glorious nature of Christ. Now, who knows what he knew? All he knew is that Christ was the one that he needed to trust. And at that moment, a dead sinner came to life in Christ, and Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So how are those whom the Father chose, the Son redeemed, and the Spirit sealed, saved in the here and now? Well, it's by grace through faith. It is always by grace through faith. That is what we saw in Galatians. It is not by works. You cannot be justified by works of the law. It has always been by grace through faith. We're going to look at that uh, later. But Paul begins in verses 1 through 3 by showing us our hopeless and our helpless state before coming to Christ. What were we? Well, we were, in a word, dead. Spiritually dead. Chapter 4 in Ephesians, verse 18, where he talks there, he talks about the new life in Christ. Verse 17, now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That is what it means to be spiritually dead. You are darkened in your understanding. Again, think of what he says earlier about having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. That is the idea of having light shining, right? Well, if you're dead in your trespasses and sins, your understanding is darkened. There's no light shining. You're in the dark. Darkness has two connotations. One is ignorance. The other one is moral depravity. And both apply here. We are dead. Again, chapter 5, verse uh, 14 of Ephesians. Where he says, For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, what is it? Well, the scriptures. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's what we saw in 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 2, verse 14, where Paul there says, The natural man does not understand the things of God, for he is unable to. They are spiritually discerned. The natural man, the man who is dead in his trespasses and sins, cannot understand the things of God. Now, 
I mean, it's not like you're speaking gibberish when you speak the things of God, and it's like a filter, and they can't, you know. No, it's they hear the words, they understand the words, they don't believe them. They don't accept them. And they definitely do not trust them. They are spiritually discerned. They need spiritual enlightenment. So we are dead. We are dead, dead, dead. What are we? Dead. Okay. Our spiritual deadness is characterized by the fact that we walk, walking dead, okay? It's right there in the text, okay? We are the walking dead. We walk in trespasses and sins. Walk is a euphemism that speaks basically of how you conduct your life. It's your walk of life. And the person who is spiritually dead has a walk that is characterized by uh, being in trespasses and sins. We saw this earlier, the idea of trespasses and sins. Uh, The idea there is, it's just the, the whole thing. It's the whole range of sins. Sins of omission, things that you should do that you don't do, and sins of commission, things that you shouldn't do, but you do. Think of what Paul says in Romans 7. The thing I want to do, that's what I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, that's what I do. Sins of omission, sins of commission. You are trans, when you trespass, you are, you are stepping over the boundary of God's law. When you sin, you are missing the mark of perfection. So it's, 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 they're synonyms. It just means all of your sins. And then in verses 2 and 3, we see our three friends. I put friends in quotes. The world, the devil, and the flesh. In which you once walked, following the course of this world. There, literally, it should be the age of this, you know, this world age. The word there is ion, means like an age, an epoch. The course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that's the devil, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. There you go. You've got the world, the devil, and the flesh. Now the world, when Paul uses it, it's the same way in the sense that John uses it, he is speaking of that which is opposed to God. Okay, I heard a great quote on a podcast this week. The world lures us. If you remember through our time in Revelation, right, in Revelation 17, you see the whore of Babylon, right, and she's decked out in scarlet and, and she, you know, all this makeup and everything. It's, it's alluring. The world lures us. The, the world tries to entice us and to snare us in its trap. Uh, here's the quote. The world wants, you to make, wants to make sin feel normal and righteousness feel abnormal. Right? And that's exactly what you're seeing today in the world, right? Sin is treated as normal. Being righteous, thinking that that is sin, that is being treated as abnormal. Right? If, if you stand up for biblical truth today, you are perceived by the world as abnormal, as wrong, as bigoted, as fill in the blank. So the world makes sin seem normal and righteousness abnormal. The world lures us. The devil, of course, there, the, the idea of the power of the air, uh, you know, he's a spirit, right? He roams about, as, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, he roams around. 
like a lion seeking those whom he may devour. Uh, the devil and his minions are, you know, these days you hear of, you know, influencers, social media influencers, right? Who are they? Well, they're basically people with no jobs that go on Instagram or TikTok and make videos, and somehow they get followed by millions and millions of people. And they say the most banal and inane things. I mean, it, I mean it, some of it isn't even just wrong, it's just stupid is what it is, yet they've got millions and millions of followers. Well, who's the real influencer in this world? Well, it's the devil. The devil's the real influencer, right? Even the stupid things that are not inherently sinful are distracting, and they draw you away from righteousness. They draw you away from the truth. They, they numb your mind with senselessness. The devil's the real influencer in the world. The devil is the one who is behind world governments and world powers. We saw that when we looked at Daniel, right? Uh, you know, when Michael comes to bring the answer to Daniel's prayers, uh, sorry, there's an angel that was uh, commissioned to bring the answer to Daniel's prayers, and we're told that that angel was opposed by the prince of Persia. Now, it doesn't mean that, like, the literal prince of Persia came and fought an angel. No, it was the power that was influencing Persia came and, and, and restricted that angel so that it, he had to wait three weeks to get an answer to his prayer. The devil and his demons are the real influencers in this world. And of course, in the flesh, right? What does he say there? The passions of the flesh are, are you know, we, we walk according to those things. We live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body or flesh and mind. That, that's, again, that flesh. Think of that. That is, that is the way to attack the believer. That is the way to attack anybody is through the flesh. The world hits us through our senses. The, the, the demonic world attacks us in our spirits. And then our fleshly passions, which are corrupted, are aroused and everything. This, that's Paul saying that's how we used to be. He says this is true of both Gentiles and Jews. That's why he says, and you were dead... And then later on it says, among whom we all once lived. This is important later on because later on in chapter 2, Paul is going to talk about how the two are made one new man in Christ. That's verses 11 through 22, and we'll get to that when we get to that. So our natural state's there, right? Verse 3, by nature. By nature. That means how we are born into this world. That is our natural state. Because of the fall, we are by nature, what are we? Children of wrath. The wrath of God is upon us. The curse of Adam is upon us. If you remember from our time in Romans, Paul brings this out in Romans 5, verse 12 and following. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That is the idea. Adam stood as a public person. He stood as a representative of the human race. And when he sinned, he introduced sin into the whole world. And now by nature, we are born into that sin. We have a corrupt nature. We inherit the guilt of Adam. And we also inherit a corrupt nature and a lack of righteousness. This is our natural state. This is total depravity. This is, this is the sense in which natural man is. Now, 
you know, you've got some who want to say, well, natural man is, is sick and he needs spiritual medicine to, to, to get well. It says, no. What is natural man? He is dead. He's not sick. He's dead. He does not need medicine. You don't give medicine to a, de- a sick person or a dead person. You give medicine to a sick person. What a dead person needs is resurrection. He needs life. We are dead. That's our natural state. And that's what Paul is diagnosing here, is that dead men don't respond to God. We respond to the world. We respond to the devil. We respond to our, to our passions, the passions of our flesh. We do not respond to God. We are at enmity with God. We hate and reject God. This is our natural state. This is the state into which we are all born into and in which we once walked. That's what Paul's saying. That, that was you. That was the old you. Again, I read this before. Chapter 4, verse 17. I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And again in verse 22. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Chapter 5, verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. So he's, he's telling you, that's what you used to be. So how did you get there? Well, you got there because you were made alive together with Christ. That's what you see in verses 4 through 7. How does verse 4 begin? You know what I'm going to say, right? <laughs> Those are my favorite words in all the Bible. But God, I have them circled in my Bible. You should have them underlined, circled, highlighted, and then peek over at your neighbor, and if they don't have it circled, underlined, or highlighted, do that for them. Say, here, give me your Bible. Let me circle that for you. I would give you permission to do it in the Pew Bible, but I'm not sure I have the authority to say that. So if you do, I won't say anything, Okay. <laughs> Just make sure no one's looking. But God. We were dead in sin, but God. We were slaves to sin, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But God, I love those words. Paul here is speaking, of course, he speaks of God as being rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. That word there, plusios, means he's wealthy. It speaks of vast riches, right? You know, anybody remember the comic strip, Richie Rich, you know? <laughs> or like Scrooge McDuck, right? You know, Scrooge McDuck would have, you know, he, it, it was funny because you always see him like jumping in a big pile of gold coins. It's like he, he was just, you know, filthy rich. Well, that's, you know, you take that, you know. He's not like, he, he's not like Bill Gates rich. He's not like Jeff Bezos rich. He is richer than that. 
He is far wealthy, and he is wealthy in mercy. And he acts out of his great love. So God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. What does he do? He makes us alive in Christ. But I want to focus on rich in mercy. Okay? We need to understand that our Heavenly Father is rich in mercy. What does that mean? He's never going to run out of mercy. And that's good, right? Because we're never going to run out of a need for mercy. Okay? We're going to, we need God's mercy every single day. Right? Grace and mercy are two sides of the same coin. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God withholding from us what we do deserve. And we need mercy. And God is rich in mercy. He never runs out of mercy. I'm going to look through a few passages here. I've got one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay? So get ready. Psalm 86, 5. Psalm 86, 5. Now, if your Bible has um, headings over the Psalms like mine does, Psalm 86 says, Great is your steadfast love. Now, you might have great is your mercy if you have a New King James. Uh, Steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. And it's one of those words that really defies being translated into one word all the time. It's one of those words that has a vast range of meaning. So it can mean mercy, kindness, faithfulness, love. But sometimes the word in Greek for mercy is trans, is, translates the Hebrew word hesed for uh, steadfast love. And in verse 5 of Psalm 86, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in hesed, mercy, kindness, love, to all who call upon you. Then verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Where have we heard that before? Well, all over the Old Testament, (laughs) right? You know, again, I think this is just a side note, uh, but I think this speaks out against anyone who wants to tell you that the God of the Old Testament is just angry, vengeful, and, you know, kind of the mean God, right? And then the God of Jesus is the kind God. No. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, a God who is merciful and gracious. Psalm 103. Starting in verse 8. It's a great psalm. It begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. And you get down to verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Slow Again, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Thank, Praise God for that. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love, His mercy, toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the, from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Psalm 145, verse 8. 
Psalm 145, verse 8, here we see the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in step. It sounds like a broken record, right? Yeah, you got to watch out with those phrases, right? I don't know if you can say broken record anymore. <laughs> I mean, we get it. <laughs> we get what a broken record is, but... Well, I, maybe they would get it because I guess vinyl's in back in these days. Anyway. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and His mercy is over all that He has made. Okay, leaving the Psalms and moving on to the book of Isaiah, chapter 55. I've read this passage before. Isaiah, I sounded Australian there. Isaiah, Isaiah, fifty-five, verse six. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on him, and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. He will abundantly pardon. Okay, I'm going to skip one, but I'll move. The last one is in Micah. Like, where's Micah? Well, it's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Obadiah, and then Micah. Or, sorry, Obadiah, Jonah, then Micah. And Hosea, or sorry, Micah chapter 7. It's the last three verses in the book of Micah. Here we read, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy or steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us he will, tr- he will tread our iniquities under his foot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love or mercy to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. God is a God who is rich in mercy, but he's also great in love. He is great in love. His love is, that word speaks of boundless. It's immeasurable. His love is immeasurable. How immeasurable is it? It's so immeasurable that he sent his son into the world, right? As Moses, this is John chapter 3, verses 14 and following, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God, or you know, the best way to understand it, in this manner, this is how God loved the world that he gave his only Son. He gave His best that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. We also see it in Romans 5, where Romans 5, 8, where Paul there says that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. How does God love us? He loves us that He sent His Son into the world while we were still sinners. 
So God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, verse 5 of Ephesians 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in other words, even when we were at our worst, what did He do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That word there, made alive, that phrase, made alive together, is one word in the Greek. Suzopoeo, to make alive together. That's literally, if you were to break it up, uh, to make alive together with. (laughs) We were made alive together with Christ when we were dead in sin. That speaks of our union with Christ. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too are raised from the dead. We are made alive together with Christ. In other words, God doesn't wait for us to get our act together before He moves, before He works. Why? Because we can. Why? Because we're dead. <laughs> you, might as well go to the, you might as well go to the Sutton Cemetery and say, get up and go to work to all the corpses that are lying there. You, that's the same effect. He doesn't wait for us to get our act together. He makes us alive. He raises us. From spiritual death. Yeah, the dry bones, right? He speaks, speak to the dry bones. And then the bones begin to rustle and they begin to form together. We are made alive together. It's the same thought Paul has in Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection. Paul almost says the exact same words in Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together. Same word. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. This is the new birth. This is regeneration. This is the Spirit coming into us and making us alive together. As Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. How is that done? The Spirit comes and He makes you alive together with Christ. It's it's by grace. That's why he bursts, he interrupts his thought. By grace you've been saved. Because he's going to bring that up again in verse 8. By grace you've been saved. Unmerited favor. In addition to being made alive with Christ, look at verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him. Again, those are those phrases. Raised us up with him, seated us with him. Again, one word in the Greek. They all have that same prefix. Uh, that means together. You know, we have been made alive together with Christ. We have been raised up together with Christ. We have been seated together with Him in the heavenly places. Compare that to verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 20. The power, His great power, in verse 20, that fa- the Father worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Same thing with us. We've been made alive together with Him And we have been raised up with Him, and we are seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
That talks, again, about our union with Christ. Christ is right now at God's right hand, and because of our union, we are there too. Now, it's an already, not yet. Okay, We are there now, spiritually united with Christ. When the kingdom comes at the end of the age, when Christ returns, we will then be seated together with Him physically, for real, in a consummated way. But we are seated together with Him. Again, union with Christ. Just as Jesus is raised and seated, we are raised and seated. And the purpose of all this, you see in verse 7, so that in the coming ages, the age to come, just like what Paul says in verse 21 of chapter 1, that he is all dominion has been given to him, not only in this age, but in the one to come, and in the coming ages, he might show, that is the Father might show, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I mean, there's so much there. Immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. The purpose of all this is to show us in the age to come his grace and kindness. This is what we will be praising him for in the age to come. This is what we will be thanking him for in the age to come. This is what we ought to be thanking for him, uh, being thankful toward him now. All things are working together for his glory. All things are done so that his immeasurable riches in grace and kindness are seen and manifested toward us. And then finally, verses 8 through 10. So we were dead in trespasses and sins. We are made alive together with Christ, and it is by grace through faith for works. All this is to show that we are saved by grace through faith. Verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, grace, charis in the, in the Greek, unmerited favor. It's the best way to define it. It's, it's often said but it's the best way to define it. Unmerited favor. God shows kindness toward us without us having to do anything to earn it, deserve it, or work for it. It is by grace you have been saved. Grace is the foundation of our salvation. Okay? This is far different than any other religion ever created by man. Because every other religion created by man is formed on the basis of works. Your, your salvation is formed on the basis of works. No matter how you want to slice it or dice it, you have to be good. You have to follow the law. You have to pray a certain amount of times. You have to do, 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 do. Okay? That is how every other man-made religion works. Grace is foreign to us in our natural state. But here, grace is the foundation. It is the bedrock of our salvation. And faith or as our catechism says, a hearty trust in question 21, right? A hearty trust um, is the instrument through which we are saved, okay? Grace is the foundation. Faith is how we receive that grace. I saw a great illustration in a commentary. It says, you are, if you are ill, you are saved by the medicine, but the medicine is administered through a syringe. Faith is that syringe, okay? You're not saved by the syringe. The syringe is the vehicle through which the medicine is delivered to you. In the same way, we are not saved by faith. 
That sounds foreign to us. We are not saved by faith. We are saved by grace. It is through faith. If you say you are saved by faith, that is to turn faith into a work. It is. If, if you say you're saved by faith, it is to turn faith into a work. Faith is just something that latches on to something else. Okay? Faith is something that latches on to the object of our faith, which in our case, for Christians, is Jesus Christ. Right? We have faith in Christ. So we are saved by grace, not by faith. We are saved through faith. It is the instrument through which we are saved. And it is not something that we can do or earn or merit. It is a gift. Right? That's what he says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Now, commentaries like to say, what does the this refer to? Right? This is not your own doing. What does the this refer to? Now, I can get really nerdy and technical with the language, but I'll spare you that. <laughs> the this refers to everything in the verse 8. And the reason for that is because, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy and technical here. Grace and faith in the Greek language are feminine and gender. Okay, so I don't mean that they're girly. I mean, it just means that grammatically they, are, they take a feminine form in the word. This is a neuter pronoun. And typically you have, to, in, in Greek, the rules are you have to have your adjectives modify the noun. In, you know, so they have to match in in gender, in form, and in case. So the this would refer to everything in the sentence. That's, that's my short way of explaining that. The this refers to everything. What is not of your own doing? The fact that you've been saved by grace through faith. What is the gift of God? The fact that you've been saved by grace through faith. That is the gift of God. God's gift to you. You don't pay back gifts, right? Okay, I know that's, that's kind of foreign to a Midwestern mind, right? You know, Midwestern mind, you give me a gift, I've got to turn around and give you a gift back, okay? Um, no, a gift is something that is given. It is not deserved. It is not earned. You can't pay it back. It is not of works. Works speak of our effort, right? We can't do it. Paul and Galatians 2, right? No one is justified by works of the law, but only by faith in Christ. You are not saved by works. Because if you are, then you have reason to boast. And God is not going to let you boast. Sorry. He's not going to share his glory with another. Prophet Isaiah says. He's not going to allow boasting in heaven. The only boasting is going to be boasting in Christ, who is our salvation. As the old hymn says, right? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I what are my hands good for? Clinging to the cross of Jesus. That's what they're good for. We're not saved by works, but we're saved unto good works. That's the point of verse 10. For we are his workmanship. We are God's craftsmanship. We are his work of art, if you will, created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Works are the necessary fruit of the one who is saved. So here, again, if you want to look at verses 8, 9, and 10, grace is the basis or the foundation of our salvation. Faith is how we receive God's grace. Works are then what comes from that fact. It is the result of that. It is the response to being saved by grace through faith. 
Make sure you get the works in the right order. They are not the engine. They are the caboose of the train. And workmanship. This is the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit conforming us into the image of Christ, right? Uh, Paul says in Romans 8.29, we are predestined to be conformed unto the image of his Son. What's that? Yeah, it, yeah I mean, the word means poem. It, it's, it tra- transliterates into poem, poema. Um, you know, it's not like, you know, roses are red, violets are blue. But it, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a work of art. It's a craftsmanship, right? And, it's, and as Philippians 1.6 says, it is a work that will be completed on the day of Christ Jesus. God, is through the, His Holy Spirit, is working in us. He's chipping away the rough edges, right? This is sanctification as we walk in the good works that He has called us unto. So bringing this to a close... This morning, God's abundant grace is seen in how he takes dead sinners and makes them alive in Christ by grace through faith. What was our state before all of this? Well, we were born helpless and hopeless under God's wrath, children of wrath, right? We were under the curse. Children of wrath means we are destined for wrath like the rest of mankind who is born under the curse. But salvation by grace means we no longer walk in trespasses and sins, but in the good works which God has prepared for us. Notice how walk kind of bookends the passage, right? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now we are to walk in the good works which God has prepared before us. So walk bookends the passage. And of course the good news is seen in and how what God planned in eternity past is accomplished in the here and now. How does, how does the one who is chosen before the foundation of the world, redeemed by the blood of Christ, sealed by the Spirit, how does that person come to faith? It is by grace through faith. He is made alive uh, together with Christ because God is rich in mercy and works on the motivation of his great love toward us in Christ.